0: <laughs> Good morning, glad you are with us uh, for this new sermon series. Uh, Joyce and I came to CLC in 83, and I've been the lead pastor since 1990, and I tend to preach in sermon series that go four to eight weeks long. Uh, someone is interrupted by a staff person giving me a break in between. Uh, There was one time we preached through the Bible and did that for like three years or something. But otherwise, it's four to eight weeks. And this is uh, really my my sort of finale, my final sermon series to preach. Uh, And uh, I don't remember who I got the idea from, but somebody said, you know, you ought to do a sermon series like best of, like all the drawings you've done in sermons. And so hence uh, the book Picture This uh, has got several sermon illustrations that I have drawn through the years. And uh, we're going to go back through and highlight two each week. We're not going to go in order. This is available in the books in the uh, welcome center, by the way. Uh, they're seven bucks here. They're ten dollars online at, at Amazon. And I've written I don't know six or seven books like this. Uh, they're made for you to be able to do with a small group or by yourself or one-on-one. Uh, and we'll kind of pick our way around. I was a little apprehensive until last night as to whether or not this was going to work. Uh, The first few pages of the book, the introduction, kind of give you insight into what I tend to preach and why I preach that way and methodology and all that. Um, Just my understanding of learning theory, for instance, if all you're going to see is a talking head, you'll remember the least amount of information. So we try to communicate in a variety of ways. I'm a fairly visual learner, I like creativity. Uh, And when I first started as lead pastor in fall of 1990, the sermon series was called Christians Are. And I just kind of laid out our culture, what we're about and gradually introduced, because we didn't do illustrations, uh, you know, dramas, props, nothing. So I gradually, I remember I used a pizza box for one sermon. I used a remote control. We did a couple of dramas and acting things out, uh, and then kind of off we went. Creativity is fun, but you never know if it's going to work or not. Uh, and I am, I am known to tell the team on Thursday or Friday, hey, let's add this to the service and see how that works. And so I remember one time... Uh, Back in the day, doing skits on stage was popular and acting out dramas. And there was a church we would often buy scripts from. And if that didn't work, I'd often write them because it fit the sermon. And we had one skit that we were going to do about two guys on an airplane. It was kind of a humorous skit. And we even got two seats from a 747, where we got them from. But we had them as props to sit in, make it realistic, right? And uh, wouldn't you know, like Thursday before the weekend, there was a horrible plane crash. Like, yeah, you get it. Okay, so we can't do that. So we pulled the plug. And then uh, about eight months later, like, okay, you know what? I think it would fit this sermon. We can get the, chair, the the seats out. Let's do it. And the same thing happened somewhere else in the world. Horrible plane crash. So we just, we scrapped the seats altogether. So. Um, but with revisiting some things I've drawn, but trying to bring a different twist, I was apprehensive. How's that going to go? Uh, but after last night it was okay god 's going to use it, and then the feedback from this morning, so uh, open your heart, open your mind to hear and receive that God might have for you and so our our theme is uh, picture this: say thriving, thriving. adjusting, adjusting. Enduring. enduring. I know you 're tired of repeating stuff, but it, you just remember it better that way, all right and uh, James chapter one verse four talks about enduring. And let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Some of you are enduring things right now as I speak. It's in a relationship, it's in your family, it's your health, it's a career, it's a job, it's an academic program. I don't know what it is that you're enduring. It's the emotional, internal state. And know that enduring is not the end in itself. Enduring is a process, and God will refine you as you endure. And so we want to lean into how do we do that rather than just bail and throw our hands up in the air. And uh, we're going to look in two different directions. The first one is learn to adjust to the unexpected. All of us have unexpected things. You look back in the past year, unexpected things, unexpected things coming at us, uh, ahead of us. And some of what I, what I weighed into at the beginning will sound like where we just came from series-wise, but it's going to take a hard right, and it'll be, it'll be some fresh material of uh, previous uh, illustrations. But how do you adjust to the unexpected, first of all, when family and other close relationships disappoint us? How many of you have ever been in a relationship that disappointed you? Raise your hand if you're on the planet, all right? Um, and you might be in that relationship now. Uh, wake-up call, you probably disappoint people also. It's a two-way street. But it's important when we look at relationships and the disappointments in those relationships that we respond to them properly because when you hit disappointment, there's a healthy way to respond and an unhealthy way to respond. We can go off-road and really make a mess of things or we can can hold to who God wants us to be. And so I want to look at four people uh, that will help us Uh, look at uh, adjustments, and two of them when it comes to disappointing, actually a third one, disappointing relationships and what to do. The first one, uh, we go back to the book of Genesis, the first book of the Bible, and it's a man named Joseph, one of my heroes. What I love about Joseph is in spite of all he went through, he did not uh, mess up and then make his way back. He stayed true. And Joseph was the son of Jacob, uh, whose name was changed to Israel, so he's the the namesake of the nation, God's chosen people. And Jacob had 12 sons, and it says in Genesis 37:1, now Jacob lived in the land where his father had sojourned, his father Abraham, or Isaac, rather, in the land of Canaan. These are the records of the generations of Jacob. Joseph, when 17 years of age, was pasturing the flock with his brothers while he was still a youth. Along with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpha, his father's wives. They were polygamous in those days. And Joseph brought back a bad report about them to their father. Let me just stop there for a second. How many of you have siblings or had siblings? Okay. I don't know if you were the tattletale or the one who got tattletaled on, but it does not bond you together. All right. Joseph shared a bad report about his brothers. Now Israel, to go from bad to worse, loved Joseph more than all his sons because he was a son of his old age. He had no more kids, and boom, all of a sudden, Joseph comes. And so he played favorites. It's one thing to have a favorite child. It's another thing to then let your other kids know that. And he was obvious. uh, And he made him a very colored tunic, a multicolored coat. The rest of the brothers are wearing drab Middle Eastern shepherd brown, and he's got this bright coat. His brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, so they hated him and could not speak to him on friendly terms. Hated him. I'm already messing with some of your mail because some of you come from really painful sibling relationships or family relationships. Family of origin can leave us unpacking baggage for much of the rest of our lives. And so they hated Joseph, Uh, and uh, it goes from bad to worse. Dad says, okay, Joseph, go out in the field and check on your brothers. They're pasturing the flock. And verse 18, when they saw him from a distance before he came close to them, they plotted against him to put him to death. When the Bible says they hated him, they hated him. And they figure out this whole plan. You can read about it. Well, let's take his coat and we'll dip it in animal blood, that multicolored coat, and let dad think that he died, killed by an animal, a wild animal. Uh, and so then they argue, let's not kill him. Let's make some money off of him. So verse 28, then some Midianite traders passed by. So they pulled him up and they, and they lifted Joseph out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. Thus they brought Joseph into Egypt. Now, we use that verse for a different illustration, but I, I want to instead to look at that and look at the disappointment that families can bring. And would you say families should? So when I point you, you say families should, okay? A little more enthusiastic than that, all right? but Okay, so love each other. No, 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 no. That's my line, all right? All you say is family should. All together. Family should. You didn't have your coffee yet or what? Okay. Family should. And that's it. All right. So Okay. Let's try this again from the top. Family should. Love each other. Family should. Be kind. Family should. Give grace. Family should. Be a place of safety and security. But what happens when they're not? because they were not kind. They hated him. It was not safe. It was not a place of security. It was a place, can you imagine being Joseph and how self-conscious you would feel, like, Dad, you're not doing me any favors, playing favorites with me. And I'll remind you, as we, we did earlier, that all things work together for good. Eventually, if we let God work it together for good, and that's where we see Joseph had a huge decision to make. My dad played favorites. I know he loves me. My brothers hate me. They want me dead. They've beaten me up and thrown me in a pit and sold me into slavery. Now I'm in a foreign nation, one of the most pagan empires on the planet, and, and, and I'm, I'm gone. Man, it would be so easy to be filled with rage and bitterness and hatred and wish the worst for them and, 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 and console yourself by imagining them dead or what you'd do to those brothers. He could have done that. Let's look at another person, family issues. It's David. King David, a man after God's own heart. When we look at David, uh, we know that uh, in in the history of Israel, there were three kings of the United Kingdom, Saul, who was a miserable failure right away. And then God told the prophet Samuel, I'm going to anoint another king, David, a man after God's own, own heart. And then he's followed by Solomon. So God has told Samuel to go to the house of a man named Jesse. Jesse has some sons. And from one of those sons, I'm going to choose my next king. And so uh, Samuel shows up at Jesse's house. He tells Jesse what the the purpose of his visit. And so he goes ahead and he brings, which one of my boys is the king king material? It's got to be Eliab. He is like, whoa, he's a king. If I ever saw a king. So he brings Eliab in front of Samuel And the Bible says in 1 Samuel 16, the Lord said to Samuel, do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature because I have rejected him for God sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward appearance but the Lord looks at the heart. There was something about Eliab we don't know. But God knew he is not the king. Then Jesse called him in and made him pass before Samuel and thought, here's the king. And he said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Next, Jesse made Shema pass by. And he said, the Lord has not chosen this one either. Imagine Jesse's frustration because they're getting less and less kingly as he passes his sons in front of him. Then Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. But Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen these. He's going to be second guessing himself. Man, I thought God for sure told me I was supposed to come to Jesse's house. And Jesse is like wringing his hands, like I don't know what's going on. And Samuel said to Jesse, are these all the kids He said, well, there remains the youngest. Behold, he's tending the sheep. And Samuel said to Jesse, send and bring him, for we will not sit down until he comes here. Now there's David, but that's David. No, bring him here. So put yourself in David's shoes, David's sandals, if you will, and read the room. You walk in, and there's Samuel. Whoa, big deal. Prophet of God. And you get an inkling of of why he's come. He's going to anoint a king. And you also put two plus two together and realize, Dad brought every one of my brothers to be considered to be king except for me. Talk about not being validated. Because we say families should think the best of you. Say, parents should should. think the most of your potential. But Jesse did not. And seven of eight sons. And and say, parents parents should. Treat all their kids and think of all their kids and value all their kids the same. But they don't. Not always. Both David and Joseph could have reacted to the injustice, could have reacted to their siblings, could have reacted to their parents, could have reacted to the, you know, I, I've never felt like I mattered in this family. I've never filled in the blank and gotten angry. and. They, they could have been angry and bitter. But neither one rebelled or acted out of hurt, anger, or frustration. How many of you have been in a relationship if you've ever been hurt? Let me see your hand. How many of you have ever been angry in a relationship? How many of you ever a relationship? How many of you are not going to raise your hand no matter what? <laughs> well, I'll go through that. How do you react when you're hurt? Angry. Frustrated all those years, and you see what they're doing to your future. And, and, and they, they adjusted, and so now I get to draw. So the, the morning just went up for me you've seen these lines before if you've been here very long. We have expectations. All the shoulds in life. Family should, parents should, siblings should, spouses should, churches should, pastors should, bosses should, coworkers should, all that. We call that our ideal. And then we have our experience, which is our reality. Don't worry, it's a little neater in the book. We took my actual drawings, so I wrote real legible for you. So, uh, The bigger this gap between our expectations and our experience, the more unhappy we are. And... You can only imagine that David and, and Joseph, the size of their gap would be overwhelming. And, and so you've heard me say that there's one way to reduce your, unha- a couple ways to reduce your unhappiness, and one of those is to adjust your expectations. Say families should. But sometimes they don't. Say parents should. parents should, but sometimes they don't. Say pick pick one other relationship in your life, whether it's a spouse, a boss, or whatever. Go ahead and say say them and say that they should. Come on, fill in the blank. Come on. But sometimes they don't. And one of the best ways to be able to adjust this, because it's it's a much more pleasant place to find contentment, is here. Some of you are in painful relationships and maybe you can't get out of it. Maybe it's for life till death to us part or maybe it's a relative or whatever. And, and you need to at the very least then adjust your expectations. It's not going to be what you thought it would be. Some of you are in frustrating relationships. They make you angry. And they make you angry in part because you expect that they should and they don't. And they should and they don't. And, and you, if you want to live with that and just be, be angry and should back and forth, you can all you want. Or you can just say, you know what? I need to adjust my expectations and have some healthy emotional boundaries and realize that's what I'll expect. I can live with this far easier than I can live with this. Otherwise, if you Utah doesn't manage this, you're going to go off sideways. You'll be your own dysfunction. And you'll not be able to manage it like Joseph obviously did, and like David obviously did, because they were able to go through all that injustice and pain and frustration, and and not act out in rebellion and resentment. Another place to adjust your expectations is in response to pain in life. And uh, a great example of that is a man that the Bible says got bragged on how righteous he was, which is pretty incredible. And he was the wealthiest man of his day and had a phenomenal reputation, had a large family. And in two days from hell, we did a whole sermon series on this, but two days from hell, if you will, he lost all of his family through natural disaster. He went from being a a father, a father-in-law, a grandfather, to they're gone. He lost all of his wealth in the same fashion, boom, from enemies and natural disasters. And then the other day from hell, literally lost his health and we find him in the story, out, outdoors, sitting on an ash heap, if you will, just scraping the infection out of the sores all over his body. Like that. And uh, his wife gives him some great consolation. Uh, in Job chapter 2, his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Should we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Elsewhere it says he did not blame God. So the first thing that Job had to do and adjust the expectations, let's stay with relationships just a little bit. Would you say spouses should encourage you? Your line is the way, and my line is the other one, all right? Spouses should wait. I'll go a little slower. Spouses should. All right? Spouses should. Encourage you. Spouses should. Have the right thing to say. Spouses should. Show you compassion. I'm sorry. I skipped you. And she didn't. She didn't say the right thing. Oh, honey, it'll be better. Why don't you curse God and die, you fool? And I don't know if your spouse meets and exceeds all your expectations or not. I'm going to guess that not everyone does. And you can stay angry and bitter and be your own dysfunction in the marriage. Or you can adjust with some healthy emotional boundaries to what the relationship's going to be and find a place of contentment. Had Job just reacted at her, whoo, it would have been different. But instead, he did say, you're talking foolish here. And he didn't blame God, didn't sin with his lips. But Job had to make another adjustment, if you will. In his expectations of life, life is not painless. How many of you are living and plan to keep living? Okay, that being the case, turn to the person next to you and say, this is going to hurt some. Go tell somebody else, this is going to hurt some. Go on, look the other way. There's a lot of blessings and good in life, but there's a lot of pain in life. And as long as you're on this planet, this is going to hurt some. And Job had to adjust his expectations because if, if you believe, he's in one of the most righteous men on the planet of his time. If you believe that righteousness is equal to painlessness, you're going to have a huge expectations you have to get between what you expect and what you experience. Life... Fill in the blank, marriage, family, career, health, even internal well-being, relationships, whatever. It's going to hurt some. And Job, who had it all, was able to adjust his expectations. Another person who should have been able to adjust his expectations but didn't is Solomon. And uh, this last point is adjust to success in life in unexpected ways. And, and there's something about success you need to be aware of because there's a pretty successful group of people in here. Don't fall in the same trap that Solomon did. Solomon was uh, the, heralded as the wisest man of his day, so you would think the wisest man would get it. One of the wealthiest men of his day. Solomon was the king of Israel during the Golden Age, so there was Saul. And then there was David a man after God's own heart and David's son Solomon. He becomes king. And you see Solomon. He wrote books of the Bible. He wrote the book of Proverbs. Incredible wisdom to this day, thousands of years later. He wrote the book, the the Song of Solomon, a great love story between a husband and wife, but also between God and his people. There's an, an imagery there. And then he wrote Ecclesiastes near the end of his life. It it rings of bitterness and the taste of disappointment. And you read Ecclesiastes, written by this man near the end of his life, who was the wealthiest, wisest, most powerful man in his day. And he starts off in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 2. Vanity of vanities. Worthlessness. It's worth nothing, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is worth. Vanity, it's all a waste. It's all And then he goes through several areas of life. He talks about how a successful work is a waste. How, how, how learning, it's, it's vanity of vanities. How there's no satisfaction in possessions or wealth or pleasure or power or fame. Vanity of vanities. Instead of this guy savoring just the juiciness of an amazing life, he's like, ah, what was it all for? You can hear the bitterness in, the, in, his, in his words. And the problem with Solomon is that Solomon didn't adjust his expectations and failed to realize that in all those things, they are not what truly satisfies the human soul. And so beware. If you're at the top of your game, you've got lots of stuff. And the crazy thing is, you go back to Deuteronomy when the people of Israel were still coming out of of the wilderness. And God warned them, someday you're going to want a king. I don't want you to have a king, but you're going to insist on having a king. Side note, if you're persistent enough, you're in disobedience, God will give you what you demand, even if it's not good for you. And so they get a king. And he warned them, when you get a king, be careful that he doesn't multiply to himself horses, that he doesn't become an arms trader, that he doesn't make alliances with Egypt, that he doesn't bring himself many wives, he doesn't hoard up silver and gold. That's Deuteronomy 17. If you wanted to look it up, look at 1 Kings 11 later today. Because it is like Solomon went to Deuteronomy 17, looked up the list of what not to do, and and he did exactly that. He had political marriages with the daughter of Pharaoh in Egypt, and so he made political alliances. He became a a horse trader in the terms of horses for war and a weapons trader, an arms trader. He had a 1,000 wives, and the Bible says his wives turned his heart away from God, and he amassed incredible fortunes. The very thing that God warned Israel, be careful when you get a king because he's going to be prone to do this. Solomon fell into all that trap, and when he amassed all that to himself, you can hear his bitterness and say, you know what? All those things don't satisfy. Had he adjusted his expectations from the get-go, he'd have probably lived a more moderated life and had that sense of contentment. And so learn from Solomon. In your success, it's not everything. In your stuff, here today going tomorrow, your popularity, your power, your fame, whatever it is, hold it loosely. Because if you cling to it, and it's yours, and it's what satisfies, sooner or later you'll find out it doesn't. And so learn to, learn to adjust to the unexpected. And I might not have touched on whatever you're dealing with, and uh, there are unexpected seasons in life. How many of you are going through something in your life right now you didn't expect? Let me see. Whew, a bunch of us. And I would, I would put myself and me and Joyce in that category. Um, you know, we're going through a season we've never been through before, and i uh, been somewhat surprised and friends have kind of said, well, I could have told you that, that have been through it as well. And it's not quite something that I share with anybody here. None of you, I think, have been a pastor of a megachurch for 30 years, so it's a little different. Um, but in this role, it is, uh, it's a calling, uh, it's demanding, it's challenging, it's rewarding, it's overwhelming, and it is a lifestyle. It pretty much prioritizes how you spend your life and your family time and all that. And then you add to it when you voluntarily make a decision to hand off your position and your role and that lifestyle for the good of the church because it's the best season for a handoff. It sounds, it doesn't sound ungrateful, but to say congratulations doesn't quite feel right. Um, exciting? Yeah, sort of. It's kind of precarious. And as I've talked to friends who have done this, uh, they say, the first thing they say, get ready for an emotional roller coaster you're not ready for. Prepare yourself for the uncomfortable and what's not normal. Just brace yourself to go through it. Now, you're not retiring from a, or handing off a a megachurch leadership role, but I don't know what you just raised your hand about. But whatever emotions you're dealing with, whatever surprises you're trying to process, maybe loosen your grip a little on both ends of this. And then what you do is you pray for wisdom. God, give me wisdom to know How do I adjust this to what place? And what can I do here to improve my experience to narrow that gap? You look at Job. One of the things he did, okay, he adjusted his expectations. Wow, this is going to be painful. It's not painless. But he also did something incredible when the pain hit. When he was there and he it was, it was wasted his wife says, curse God and die. What did Job do? He worshipped God. Worship worship service of one. Lord, what are the behaviors that I can do in my unknowing, in my whoa gap adjustment that I can also do to narrow that? Pray for wisdom. God brings that. Let's look at another area, another drawing that I get to do, and that is don't give up your identity. And so your identity is something precious and priceless. And so you're going to be part of the sermon illustration today. Everybody smile. All right, so put your hands like this, like I'm about to put like a, a big hunk of gold in your hands. How's that, all right? I don't know, or whatever matters to you, okay. So come on, all right? Now I want you to hold it like this, like, like you don't want to lose it, like a little kid, okay? All right, come on. Now! <laughs> okay, now, all right. So, and say, my identity. is precious. Okay, stop repeating now, okay. <laughs> God, <laughs> God gave it to you. As a a Christian, God gave you your identity. It is precious and priceless, and someone wants to be an identity thief and steal it from you. The identity is found in 1 John 3, verse 2. Hold it like that, and then we can be done. Beloved, now we are children of God. Would you say, I'm a child of God? And answer appropriately. Are you a son or a daughter? Say, Which, which, which are you? All right. It has not appeared yet what we'll be, we know when he appears we'll be like him because we'll see him just as he is. You've got the identity of a son or daughter of God. And what I love is I can't wait for someday when I see him just as he is, and I will be a perfect version of Jesus through Stantharp. That's going to be great. And you've got an identity thief wanting to steal that from you. He wants to steal, kill, and destroy. And I want to I remind us and go back to... Uh, the identity theft that Satan wants to do. All right, so first of all, don't be... These are question marks. He tries to deceive. Say deceive. Uh, He tries to divide. Say divide. He tries to... Distract. That's a little face. Can you tell? Okay. And then he tries to discourage. Say that. Satan is not creative. God is. But he's really good at what he does. And so he has found that these four things work really well to steal your identity to deceive you, to divide us, to divide you, distract and discourage, and he is really good at, it, and he will succeed in this often. It helps if we're on our guard, we know not to, to be putting his hands. But when it comes to being deceived, Genesis chapter three shows us that his initial handiwork. Uh, it's the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve in this paradise. And it says in verse 1, Now the serpent was more crushed than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said you should not eat from any tree of the garden? Now that's a little true. He did say don't eat from a tree in the garden, but not any tree. In fact, she corrects him. Well, God didn't say that. He said just don't eat from that one tree. And see, when Satan comes to deceive, he usually takes a little bit of truth, adds a little bit of lie to it, and then we believe it. He did that with Jesus in the temptation in the wilderness. In Matthew, uh, read the early chapters there. And Jesus in the wilderness and Satan Satan quoted scripture to Jesus and then tried to get him to misapply it. And Jesus had to correct it because a little bit of truth with a little bit of lie can deceive. And the reason why I put a bunch of question marks there is because the more you hear the lie, 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 you just gradually accept it as truth. Now, the reason we, we dismiss children from the service is uh, for a 90-second clip. It's not even 90 seconds long. And if you're watching online, one of the benefits of being in the room is you see all of it. But because of copyright, we can't show it to you. Uh, But I asked our team, I said, okay, uh, do we, and I left my Bible in the back, do we have, uh, can you get any clips to show uh, how the sexual lifestyle of our culture that is so contrary to biblical morality, how that's being forced on our kids? It took five minutes, and they sent me a link. You're going to see this link. And so it is just a handful of clips, just a few seconds long each, from things by Disney and Pixar, Uh, children's programming. And watch in just a handful of seconds how often you see the deception being pushed on children during kids' programming. Watch this. I read the comments below that on YouTube. And somebody said, oh, we make a big deal. It's just a, hand, just a few seconds. What's the big deal? And the problem, and, and, and that's, that's YouTube, but you can't watch a set of commercials on prime time that this agenda is not being forced, just subtly. And, and what's happening is just, and if your child, now I'm going to assume I'm talking to parents <clears throat> from some other church, not here. <laughs> because you would never give this to a child in the first place, but if you did, or an iPad, or a smart TV, or a lap, or a computer, you would never give this to them <clears throat> unmonitored. Just nod your head like, of course you don't. Because if you give this to them and they just find something to entertain themselves, Pixar and Disney and loads of wealth are, are very eager to entertain your child. Only it's, it's also indoctrinate your child. And how many, I mean, that's just, that's just four clips like that, okay? I just watch commercials. How many times does a child see that? And over time, that, that is just normalized. I try to preach on sexuality about once a year. First of all, your kids probably aren't in those sessions. And... and and I, I preach about the fact we've all got sexual temptation. We have a responsibility to manage that and honor God with it. And so there's pretty narrow parameters there. And so Satan is good at deceiving. and He's trying to deceive a whole generation. And, unsa- and sadly, years from now, after a whole generation bought the lie, they're going to be in such pain and disappointment and need a Savior and a church that will love them back to Christ. Another area of deception that is just common is you hear the word evolution. Evolution, would you say it's a theory? A theory is unproven. It's an educated guess, I was always told. But nobody talks about the educated guess of evolution. It is fact. And in fact, it's it's been repeated so much, we just accept it, without even realizing it. In fact, I taught a class on uh, mental health and ministry recently to some ministry candidates. And I gave an assignment and the one gal turned to science, it was, it was research anxiety and depression online and give me a brief paper about it. Turned in a great paper, but the first paragraph talked about how, you know, like humans, like other animals, we have certain responses, da 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 da. And I complimented a paper and said, by the way, biblically, biblical worldview, we're not animals. We're creating God's image a little lower than the angels. That's an evolutionary principle. And, and we are different from the animals, and so just be careful with your worldview and your word choice. Darwin, who was the founder of the evolution theory as we know it, one of his key assumptions, he knew there were holes in his theory, but he knew that what would prove it was in the future, with more scientific investigation, they would discover what's called transitional forms. Because the idea is you go from single-celled animals to more cells and then they're in the water and then they, they trans, transition into reptiles who become mammals, who become uh, birds and, and all that and it all happens in this gradual, long, multi-million year process. So it's trial and error, trial and error, trial and error, trial and error, trial and, right? And finally you become this and then trial and error, you become that. There's no trial and error fossils. There are no in-between forms that show the transition from a fish to a reptile to a mammal to a bird. The in-betweens are missing. There's a whole bunch of these. There's a whole bunch of these. A whole bunch of these creatures. A whole bunch of these creatures. But that's because God said, let there be. Then God created, and he did it like that. But we've heard this so much, so much, so much, so much, so much, so much. The deception is bought. He tries to deceive. There's a whole implication with that. The second thing he tries to do is divide. You have heard me say, Satan does not fear a big church. He fears a united church. Good, you're paying attention. And uh, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3 says, Be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There's one body, one Spirit. Just also there's, you were called in one hope of your calling. There's one Lord, one baptism, one Unity. And Satan will try to destroy, divide churches. He'll try to divide husbands and wives. He'll try to divide families. He'll try to divide, divide workplaces, communities, and on and on. And Jesus warned us about what I believe is the fate of our nation. If something major doesn't happen, and that is a house divided against itself cannot stand. Our nation is never more divided now. And unless the peacemakers can help make peace and reconcile, we're in big trouble. And, and just like this... The vision usually has some truth to it. Did you hear what the boss said? Oh, I, can't, I can't believe the boss said that. And then we add our editorial to it. And before you know it, we're, we're angry and frustrated and not understanding and we're divided. Can you believe what the pastor said? Can you believe what my, my neighbor said? Can you believe what she said, he said? And, and so before you know it, we add a little bit of truth and a little bit of our own opinion and whatever. And we're like this. And once we're divided, we're not far from done. Satan also tries to distract us. And I believe this is the biggest threat to the what is I want to use to the intended purpose of the church because i believe the hope for the world is in the hearts and lives of the people that are sitting here and if the world's getting hopeless I have to wonder what is happening in the hearts and the lives of us that are here the bible talks about about not distraction. In Proverbs 4, verse 25, it says, let your, your eyes look directly ahead. Say directly ahead. directly ahead. Let your gaze be fixed straight in front of you. Watch the path of your feet and all, and all your ways will be established. Do not turn to the right or to the left. Turn your foot from evil. There is a focus, a fixed, I mean, that's what we're about. Jesus clarifies what we're supposed to be focused on and what we're all about. In Matthew 6, 33, he said, but seek first, say number one. Say it enthusiastically, number one. number one. Say it like you're cheering for whoever your team is. Put your finger like this. Come on, ready? Number one. Yeah, seek first, number one, his kingdom and his righteousness, and all the rest of the stuff is a distant second, third, fourth, fifth. The rest of the stuff is not that important. I don't know that my fear is the American church is not living like, man, you look at their life, number one is the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That's the most important thing to all those people. We're getting distracted to the, to the shiny trinkets of life. Hebrews says, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, that's saints who have gone to heaven, let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin that so easily entangles us. Boy, the Bible speaks truth. Isn't it easy to sin? I'm going to ask that again. Did you that? I never said, well, I hope I can lie here. <laughs> hope I can lust. Hope I can be selfish. It's easy to sin. Amen? Lay aside the sin that so easily entangles us and let us run with endurance. There's that word again, the race set before us. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross and despised the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So for consider him who endured such hostility against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Focus, not distracted. And finally, discouraged do a word study, discourage. You have the courage taken out of you. It means to deprive of courage, of hope, of confidence. Courage is the quality of mind or spirit that enables a person to face difficulty, danger, and pain without fear. And when we are discouraged, we can't handle the fear. We don't know what to do with the pain. We lose our confidence, we're insecure, we're self-conscious. All of those things happen when we are discouraged. Sometimes discouragement comes because it just won't, won't stop, it just lasts on and on. Things happen, we had too big of a gap here in what we thought, or what people did, what they should do, they didn't. I don't know what discourages us, but, but I'm speaking to people right now, many of you are discouraged. You have a good game face on, that's fine. But inside you're dying. In fact, look around. Look at people. Just look at them. Behind, beside, in front. Just look at them. Smile. You don't look better when you smile. I guarantee you, many of you looked at somebody who is really discouraged. But they came and they're here. And a discouraged soul hopes somebody will say or do something to encourage me. And that's why the Bible says in Proverbs that like apples of gold and setting of silver are words spoken in the right circumstance. Boy, the right words are like, ah. <sighs> what happens when nobody's there to encourage you? And you're dying on the vine. I don't know if you can make it another day. Well, we're not hopeless yet or helpless yet because it happened to David. And how many of you know sometimes you're discouraged because you messed up? Okay. If you didn't raise your hand, it might be a reason why you got to look at it. David did that. David messed up royally. Made a horrible tactical blunder militarily. The enemy came in because of his mistake, took all the women and children. And look, look at where David finds himself in 1 Samuel 30. Moreover, David was greatly distressed because the people spoke of stoning him. That's pretty bad. All the people were embittered, each one, because of his sons and his daughters. His families were taken. But David encouraged himself In the Lord his God. When there is no one else to encourage you, you can encourage yourself in the Lord. How do we do that? With with, with words of prayer and gratitude. Thanking him. Go back to God's word and read the good things God has done and declare his goodness and his power and his faithfulness and encourage you that God did that. He can work in me. And so as we talk about that, I want to go ahead and just close this message with a word of prayer. For those of you that this message fits maybe better than you'd like, and you're going through these things. So you bow your heads with us, and then we're going to end with a real encouraging close. If you're here today and you say, "Yeah, this, this sermon fits," I am really discouraged. or I realize as you're talking, I've been distracted to what doesn't matter. My fill-in-the-blank, my marriage, my family, my, my, my job is divided and it's destroying us. Or I realize, well, I've been deceived. Or I don't know what the truth is. I don't know what to believe anymore. Or you're saying, I, I need to be able to adjust to what I didn't expect. Whether it's relationships, whether it's pain, whether it's the disappointment of this life or some other emotional experience. If you're sitting here saying, yep, I need God to help me in at least one of those areas you just preached about, just raise your hand. That's all we're going to do is raise your hand and pray. Yeah, scores of us. Lord, you see our upraised hands. And you see our hearts. While people look at the outward appearance and maybe assume everything is fine, you see our struggle. You see our pain. Holy Spirit, teach us. Show us what expectations to adjust. Show us what we can do to respond in a healthy way to manage that and to be able to live in contentment and trust. Lord, I pray for those who are discouraged, they're weary, and they're heavy laden. Lord, you said, come to me and give them rest in their souls. Lord, for those who, who Lord, maybe they've not been paying attention, they realize maybe they've fallen asleep with a switch and they're in deception. Lord, we pray you'd show us what to believe, what's true those that are battling the pain of division from loved ones and workplaces, whatever the case might be, God, we pray that you will bring reconciliation and healing And those who are distracted. Forgive us, Lord. Help us to keep our eyes on Christ. And we're thankful, Lord, for the identity that you've given us as sons and daughters of God. Help us to preserve that, protect that, and rest in that in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen.